Hello, dear friends, Jai Guru, and welcome to another episode of the Chela to Chela podcast, featuring interviews and conversations with YSS SRF disciples of our sweet Guru Dave, Paramahansa Yogananda Ji. As we get to know a little more about some of our fellow disciples through the Chela to Chela podcast, it gives us the opportunity to support them with our prayers, our goodwill and perhaps even with our resources and business connections. At the end of the podcast, I'll tell you how you can get to the free private access pages to further connect with our guests. Before we enter this next episode, let us listen to this quote of Guruji as shared by Mukti Madhavji, who was with Master when he was in the body. Mukti Ma is speaking. This is a time of spiritual rejuvenation, a time of drawing closer to God the Father and to the Divine Mother. Our Guru has said to us, a steady stream of divine power will flow to you, for the great ones have sent me here. When I am gone, you will realize this with greater impact. Little by little, a spiritual change will come to the true followers of this path and their influence will spread over the world. SRF is one of the greatest spiritual movements ever sent to help mankind. And today we have with us Mike Gratz. Hi there, Mike. How are you? Hello, Brenda. I'm very well. Okay, so we had a little bit of um, challenge to get all set up, but uh, Perseverance did the trick with Guruji's help, right? Yes, it did. Okay, so Mike, tell the people around the world where you live. I live in Hidden Valley, part of Escondido, where the Hidden Valley Ashram is, and I'm three miles down a dirt road past the ashram. Wow. I built a house there 22 years ago. Wow, 22 years you've been there. Now, how, do you know how long Hidden Valley has been there? It, we acquired it in 1978, I believe. And uh, I was first out there in 1979. Uh, just happened to be in a position uh, to have found out about it. I think it was August of 1979. We may have acquired it in 79, but it's roughly that year. Wow, so you're, you're one of the pioneers. More or less, I was at, at that time. It was uh, forty acres of, of grapevines, and uh, they're all gone now. But we were out there pruning the grapevines with Brother Premamoy, and uh, picking the grapes later. Okay, so let's let's stay with that for a little bit. What else can you tell us about the early days of Hidden Valley? Because you are in a unique position to share that information. 
Well, a little bit. I wasn't living out there. We were just going out on occasion when something needed to be done and they needed some extra manpower. Uh, so I know, do know at the beginning, uh, SRF hadn't really accepted that they were going to take this land. And they had some lay members out there with some uh, monastic supervision uh, advice, not so much supervision, I guess. Uh, and they were growing tomatoes and they had every inch of land, I believe that was arable almost, covered with tomatoes. And they were flood irrigating them, trying to make money, bring it to a point where it would be self-supporting. And yes. that's my first memories of it. And uh, the tomatoes didn't work, <laughs> but they've gone through many an iteration since then. And uh, they have remained self-sustaining. I know that much. That yes. was one of Diamond's instructions. Uh, Brother Jarmananda was there from the beginning. I remembered one of his favorite stories to tell is Ma telling him not one thin dime other center. <laughs> That's correct. That's correct. <laughs> and those iterations are, are interesting to think about too because um, I didn't know about the grapes. I kind of knew about the, the tomatoes. And then they went to... Um, was it uh, sprouts? That was another thing. Yeah, sprouts, herbs, yes. various sorts. Yes. And, and then the, uh, the hibiscus. The hibiscus. Yeah. That's something. Yeah, they, uh, they put up about 20 big glasshouse Quonset hut type things and uh, covered them uh, to be used as a uh, sunroom so that they could grow all through the year. And uh, those are gone. They didn't uh, didn't pan out either. No, they were certainly beautiful, but um, distribution was the glitch there. And and at that time, the monastics were there, and they weren't there to be in business. But so it was kind of a catch twenty two of of uh, not one thin dime, but we've got to pay the bills. And in the early days, the lay disciples that were there would go out and work and bring Brother Dharmananda their paychecks. And they would all sit around the table and say, okay, which bill are we going to pay and which one we have to let wait? No, I hadn't heard that, but <laughs> I believe it. Yeah, <laughs> Brother, Brother D told me that. So, you know, it's, it's had its struggles. And, of course, now they're running wonderful retreat programs that are, are yes. fantastic for men, uh, married and single, young and old. It's fantastic. Yeah, that's one of their main sources of income right now, too. And they've done a lot of renovation. The, the place is beautiful. Oh, unbelievable what they've done out here. Brother Ishtananda is just, uh, I don't know quite how to put it in words, but he's always got a project going, and every one of them is beneficial to the look of the ashram. And beautiful, yes. He's a creative spirit, isn't he? Yes, he is. Yep. Uh, actually, in season three here, um, we've had three gentlemen that have been to a Hidden Valley, and a little bit of information has come out from each of you. So that's that's kind of simpatico for this uh, season of the Chela de Chela podcast. Good. So, Mike, a little bit more about your profile. Are you married? Do you have children? And what do you do for a living? Okay. Well, no, I'm I'm divorced for... 41 years now, <laughs> single, uh, no children, and I'm retired, although I'm a software engineer 
I have a degree in computer science. And <laughs> You'll excuse me if I giggle over that one with all the trouble that we well, had getting yeah. off. But I, I didn't work with uh, many com or, or microcomputers, which is what PCs are and all the new stuff. I worked with many computers, which are a bare step down from big mainframe computers like IBM 360s. Uh, turned on the, these giant computers where everything took up an entire room. Oh, my. Yeah. And uh, I did that for almost about 20 years. And, and my company always gave me a leave of absence to go for a year. I'd done it four times in 1991. I took a one year leave of absence. Took, I usually went to Europe, Europe and or India or both. When I returned from that 1991 trip, uh, there was a big recession, 91, 92, and I'd been laid off. And at that point, I was a little bit tired of computers. So went to a truck driving school and for the last 10 working years of my life, I drove an 18 wheeler all over the United States and Canada. Wow. <laughs> the fact is that it's the most enjoyable job I ever had in my life. Oh my gosh, why? Yeah, because there's no one looking over your shoulder. You pick up a load on time, you deliver it on time. And being a traveler, I was sightseeing over the entire country, laid over in every state and every city in the country. I had a bicycle on the truck and it was like a paid vacation. And these oh. trucks, they have, they have double bunk beds in them. You have a fridge, TVs if you want one, everything you need. It's like a, a, a camper in a truck. So I absolutely love the job. It's like a, you're driving around in your own private cave. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you, you really brought in this travel gene with you, this incarnation, didn't you? Oh my, yes. And, and yeah. Guruji's been supporting it. So let's go yes. there a little bit. You, where, where, have you, where haven't you been? Maybe that's the question to ask. Well, where have I been is better. Okay. I've, I've been to every country in Europe, most of them multiple times. I've gone to Europe seven times now for a minimum of six months each time. A couple of times I went from there to India. My first time was 1972 and I drove and I went overland to India on the Kathmandu Trail with all those hippies back then. Uh -huh. I was one of them. <laughs> and uh, that's, that yeah. is a trip when I was in India that I read the autobiography of a yogi while in India. Uh -huh. uh, I've also been all across North Africa and over most of the Middle East, uh, Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, Sri Lanka, Syria, Jordan, um, Israel, Egypt. Uh, uh, so I've got about 130,000 photographs. Oh my gosh. From Europe. I'm a serious amateur photographer. And so I've got thousands upon thousands of photographs all organized into shows that I brought back to show people these places that most of them will never have the opportunity to see. Really? Brother Premamoy told me to do that. He said, you can't go on all these trips. He said, you've got to get serious about your photography. Come up here to the ashram and learn from some of the monks because your duty on these trips is going to be bring these countries to people that won't ever be able to see them. Wow. Yeah. Can't do it for personal pleasure, he said, only. <laughs> Marching orders have been. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's wow. it, exactly. Wow. Okay, so um, gosh, I'm full of questions here. Uh, where do you show these? 
I show them at my house or anywhere someone would like me to show them. I've shown them at the ashrams, uh, particularly Encinitas and uh, uh, Lake Shrine to the monastics. And uh, I've shown them down at uh, the San Diego temple where I used to go. Now I just go to Hidden Valley. Uh, that, that's it basically at, okay. home, at someone else's house or the ashram. Okay, well, I have a feeling your travelogue duty as has been given to you is not done yet, so. <laughs> no, it isn't. <laughs> yeah. so, when you did all this traveling, you were a devotee? Yes, and... except the first trip when I read the autobiography in India and became a devotee. Right, okay, I'm gonna get to that, but while we're in the travel thing, I, I wanna yeah. ask you, um, you've met devotees in all these places that you've been? I've Yeah, I know devotees and have stayed at pretty much every country in Europe where they have a meditation group. Yes. Okay, here's uh, my question. You've had this wonderful experience and this ability to connect with devotees all over the world. Tell us about the similarities that you've found um, and anything else you want to add about that experience of meeting so many different devotees of so many different countries and cultures. Well, the, I'll start with the cultures. <laughs> uh, what I have noticed is the openness of people to meet and talk and uh, get to know other people and sincerely join in a conversation that is, that is absolutely valid. It's a real, a real friendship, even if it's only for one or two minutes. There's a real connection with and, almost and every one of them. When you say people, we're talking about devotees. I'm talking about people in general right now. In general, okay. the devotees is a, is a far different, is a much different story. Although okay. that same that same kind of uh, getting together and seeing each other as friends and becoming friends is it was universal. But devotees, you would not believe the openness and the welcoming that we got from them. And I had more than one of them say, "We've been together in the past." And is there something aside from the openness and the welcoming? Uh, that you got is there a a quality of the devotees that was more predominant as a whole or did you find that different countries the devotees in different countries exemplified different aspects of the devotee personality uh, you could probably say that in southern europe italy spain greece that uh, there was a a much more easygoing uh, southern europe feel that you know they like to talk they like to eat they like to get together with friends and and uh to a larger extent than northern europe although even in northern europe they were calling up friends and hey we're getting together we're going over to so-and-so's house and we've got you know 10 devotees coming over and in fact uh we were in a small group in southern uh sicily in uh, the rafa dali meditation group they said oh we're going to this restaurant tonight some of the devotees are coming over we had 75 people show up. Oh my gosh. Yeah, oh my gosh. We, so, we took over the restaurant. So, <laughs> <laughs> what But in Northern mean? Europe, it would be a smaller group as a rule. So uh, we could say then that what I'm hearing here is that um, divine fellowship has been uh, one of the foremost qualities that you have seen yes. uh, in the devotees throughout your, your yeah. travel. And, and, and devotion to master. And devotion yeah, they're, to they're, master. They're just all, yeah, they're all living the life that master i mean they're all striving to live it to the best of their ability the devotion is there and the uh the commitment the commitment to it 
Great. It's nice to think yeah. about. <laughs> oh, it is. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So now let's go to that, that big question in that India trip. How did you find Guruji? Right. Well, now this is a bit of a story. So okay. I, I need to preface it with a few things so that you'll, you'll understand my path toward it. Okay. Um, and I'll start with a, a sad story which when I was 16 years old, and this, as I look back on it, I realized these are steps in my uh, approach uh, to master opening the doors for me. Uh -huh. uh, uh, we, had, we had moved from one town in Virginia to another town, and we had a, had a small dog who I just loved. And it was an outside dog, but the place we moved into in Virginia was a place where we could not have him outside. And so one day we had him out, we were playing her, we had her out and we were playing with her and we forgot she was out there. While we came, when we came back inside, we heard something going on outside and she had gotten run over by a car. She ran out into the road. And I was so devastated because I loved her so much. And I never had any particular I, I was brought up a Methodist, but I never had any particular affinity toward uh, religion. I, you know, for me, church was just go and get out as fast as you can and watch that watch go around 60 times on the second hand so I could get out of there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At this point, I, I sat down and I was hurt so badly that I thought there cannot be a God if he allows something like this to happen. And at that point, I virtually became an atheist. I just, uh, there was no, no opening there at all. Uh, agnostic really, because I thought you can't prove it, but that stuck with me. And so, and I, and I was uh, pretty unhappy with life. Although I was outgoing, I had friends. There was always inside. I'd look around and I, all I would see was some kind of bleakness to existence. Just thought, is there any way that I can be happy? And I'd pretty much tried everything. And in 1971, I decided I'm going to Europe. I'm miserable. And, and this is my last effort at something that will make me happy, travel. And so hopped in an airplane and flew to Luxembourg. Just prior to doing that, I read one book. Uh, you're probably familiar with uh, Carlos Castaneda. I was in a bookstore one day and I saw this book on the shelf called A Separate Reality. And it opened up what I now recognize to be astral stuff. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, uh, this is very interesting. Uh, it seems true. I don't know what the heck is going on, but I, I, it stuck in the back of my mind that maybe there's something else other than what I see in the, on the visual plane of material existence. A window of some sort, small window open. Yeah. So I fly into Luxembourg with my backpack on and a map of Europe and a thumb. <laughs> and I hitchhike away from the airport. So I, I flew in and I'd been to Europe when I was in the Marines. I had a six month tour of duty in the Mediterranean because they always keep, keep a battalion of Marines in the Mediterranean. So I had some familiarity with Europe, but to fly in by myself with no plans, it was a little daunting. So I'm sitting in the airport after I get off the plane, I've got my map of Europe out and I'm, I'm a bit, bit scared. <laughs> I'm 25 years old and uh, I didn't know quite how to handle this. And I'm still sitting there an hour later looking at my map thinking, well, I've got a round trip ticket. I can fly <laughs> right back home if I wanted. 
uh, as opposed to getting out on a road uh, continent where everybody speaks a different language than I do. While I'm sitting there, I see a, a man coming from the entry gate right toward me. He's uh, got gray hair about halfway down his back, uh, got a backpack on, and he walks straight to me and says, I see you've got a map. Where are you going? <laughs> I said, I have no idea. He said, let's go there together. <laughs> I went, okay. <laughs> I've got a friend here already uh, and someone to share this with. So I've got, suddenly got the courage to get up and we, we took off. <laughs> and so we, we take off hitchhiking. We stayed together all the way, uh, all the way through Europe. We ended up hitchhiking, heading uh, through Greece and on to Istanbul and the Kathmandu Trail. That's the head of the Kathmandu Trail. Kathmandu Trail was Istanbul at the time. Um, so we, we hitchhike on into Istanbul. So we meander on across, across Iran, uh, into Afghanistan. And we got up and Robert said, well, Mike, I've got to be going on by myself now. Uh, so that morning we said a very uh, mournful goodbye. We became very good friends. Two months we spent together getting that far. So he hopped on a bus and and uh, I, I went on around Afghanistan and met a friend, an Italian friend, and joined up with him to head on into India. So we travel, I traveled with my Italian friend on up into the Kulu Valley near Kashmir, across India, Delhi, um, Benares, Agra, up to Nepal. And, and this whole time I'm traveling, I'm enjoying the travel, I'm still miserable. <laughs> yeah, no, in no way. I knew by now the travel wasn't going to make me happy. So, uh, while we were in Kathmandu, we hiked out into the, uh, the Himalayan foothills to a place where you could see 180 degree view of the snow-capped Himalayas. We went up there to camp. Uh, when we got there, there were there was another couple couple up there from Iowa, uh, and uh, they had a friend with them who was Malaysian. And so we hit it off right away with them. And we stayed up there three or four days. And uh, I'm really looking at this point forward to getting back to Kathmandu and having a good meal because meal, meals always made me feel good eating, <laughs> at least while I was eating them. I'm telling them, telling them about this restaurant that we'd eaten at, a Tibetan restaurant. From a, I said, you're going to love this meal. And so we got back, got back to Kathmandu, went out to this restaurant, Delicious meal. Everybody enjoyed it. When it was over, I was the unhappiest I'd ever been in my life. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Right then and there, I said, that's it. It's impossible to be happy. I can never be happy. And so I thought, what do I do? And I, all I could think of was I'll fish the rest of my life because I love to fish and it made me happy. I couldn't think of anything else. <laughs> I mean, I'd have friends, of course, but fishing took me out of out of my unhappiness like food did. And I thought, that's it. So I'm back in my room and Ming is getting ready to go back to Malaysia. And he's unpacking his pack, getting it, you know, resorting things. And he reaches into his pack. Oh, and one other thing I didn't say. Several times, Robert, as we were traveling across Europe and talking to others, he made this statement as they were talking about things. He said, I don't see how anybody who reads the autobiography of a yogi cannot believe it. I heard him say that a dozen times. 
yeah. So, so here I am in the room with Ming. He reaches into his pack and pulls out the copy of the autobiography of a yogi. And I said, that's that book Robert was talking about. <laughs> let, Ming, let me see that book a minute. And uh, I start reading it. And halfway through the first chapter, the lights come on. I said, this is the gospel truth. This is my guru. There's no doubt about it. And, and everything around me was magical. Inside, outside, things were sparkling with an astral light. And Master's face on the cover was alive, moving. <laughs> and I thought, thank God I found the purpose of life. And, and everything I need to know is right here in this book. And I said, I've, I've got to go back to Los Angeles right now and join the ashram. Because Robert had talked about ashrams and that kind of thing several times. I said, I've, I've got to be a monk. I've got to go back there and join the Self-Realization Fellowship Order now. So I packed my pack, went straight to Mother Center, said, I've got to talk to somebody. <laughs> and and um, one, of the, one of Master's original disciples, Vijoya Mata, she, she walked in. I said, wow, she looks just like my grandmother. I said, I want to be a monk right now. She said, well, have you got Korea? I said, no. Have you started the lessons? No. <laughs> well, you're going to have to start the lessons, and then we'll go from there. But go have a chat with Brother Pramamoy. And so that's how I got in. Wow. <laughs> it, was, wow. it was a miracle to me, that's for sure. So yeah. from, from being an, uh, an atheist to having the light go on, literally. Yeah, yeah literally. And yeah no reason no reason it should have gone on logically through half the first chapter yeah yeah so you know um you knew my husband john uh yes. john, john held um the opinion that um devotees come to finish up uh, the devotees that are committed to the path come yes. to, to finish up little bits of karma that are are left over you know and yes why a lot of devotees um change careers or move from one place to another or right um have a different experience the first part of their life before they have master because they've got stuff to work out in yes that, yes in that venue with without remembering master so mm. it, we see <clears> right so often isn't it yes and yeah it seems so clear that. Yeah. And then the light goes on. And uh, yeah. amazing, yeah. amazing thing. So then let's just talk a little bit about this happiness thing. Um, being, not being happy, not finding happiness, um, the things that made you happy no longer made you happy. You, mm. you know, I, I think this is not a unique story. I think this no, is not at all. for a lot of us. Yes. And um, I remember people used to tell me when I was younger, well, why don't you smile? And I would be thinking to myself, I'm not going to smile if I don't feel like I'm, you know, it's sincere. Why should I smile? Yeah. And, and there wasn't a lot to smile about. So yeah, <laughs> I, actually, there probably was if I had the right attitude, but I, I came in with this wanting, um, knowing that there was something more unconsciously and not being satisfied with what right. was around me at that time. So um, let's talk about this happiness thing. So 
you got to the place where travel and food no longer fit the bill. So it's almost like you had to give everything up before Guruji turned on the light for you. you had yeah, yeah I, had to, I had to realize that it was going to work, yes. Yep, you had to come to the bottom yeah. before, before you were able to be receptive enough. And, and in yeah. talking about that, isn't that how it is for us also? I know it is for me. If I'm not settled about something, I have to get to the total dregs of it before I'm washed clean, shall we say. Yes, yes. And then, and then the light goes on, right? Yes, then, right. Then you're receptive to what Master has to tell you. So when you met Master and, you, and the light went on, how did that affect your ability to be happy, to find Oh, uh, yeah. It was, it was like night and day. Now, I, I still, of course, know that I'm not going to be completely happy until I have Nirvikapa Samadhi Yoga. Or, you know, I, I've got to be in that state. But the, the difference in the, the way I lived my life and how I felt about things and, and the fact that I could do the things that I do uh, with the happiness and joy that I feel in meditation, uh, doing Kriya Yoga, uh, that's, that's made all the difference in the world in enjoying life. Uh, and what comes to me in life is taking master with me into it. You, you just can't, you can't do things once you're at a certain point and enjoy it without master. Yeah, so that's the difference it made. So I, I meditate, it always works. It may, it, you know, it fades out after a while and I have to go renew it with a, a midday meditation or whatever. But, you know, you lose, as you get into the world, a, a bit of the, uh, uh, the feeling of meditation, but uh, it can always be brought back with meditation. So imbuing everything I do with, with master uh, makes life, enjoyable even though there's always an unhappiness that you haven't if you haven't attained samadhi you're going to always have some element of dissatisfaction yes striving yeah yes yes um and i, I don't know that that's that's really unhappiness it's just um yeah i agree i'm knowing that there's a, a greater experience yes. of, yeah uh, there, there's more yeah. you know um in the sunday service this last week it brings back to mind a sentence that um in the past i've appreciated and had forgotten and it was there for me again and it's so apropos here guruji said in recognition of thee as the soul doer lies the value of all my life's experiences boy that says it all isn't it isn't it <laughs> yeah just, just yeah <laughs> our guruji's the greatest yeah, yeah. You, know, you know you can <laughs> i know it. it's and, it's, and it's a miracle just, just <laughs> thinking about him yeah Okay, my dear. Well, I'm going to ask you a couple more questions. Um, what is it that you have found works for you? Is there one thing or more things? Um, when you're in a phase of um, spiritual growth, which usually means struggle. Yeah. Meditation. No matter what kind of a hole I'm in, no matter what uncertainty, sitting down and doing at least some kriyas uh, and the longer the better always gives me perspective and balance it never fails you know the the worry or the concern or the the issue that i'm dealing with always becomes lessened when i meditate okay it's it's, yeah. it's almost the only thing that really does it 
I mean, I can, I can sit down and write out the, the issues, the problems, the solutions, but meditation always gives me the confidence that I'm going to overcome and solve the problem okay. without, without fail. Yes. Yeah. And, and I want to dig a little deeper there because um, we can say that meditation helps us and is the answer, but there's a, there's a gap between struggling and either getting yourself to sit down and meditate or to meditate deeply or to have the confidence, that's what you just said, the confidence mm -hmm. that this is going to help me. This is good. So there's a, with that confidence, it's like you leave your, your concern and your worry and your struggles outside of the meditation room or, yes. you know, you, you leave it somewhere and you go right. to a place in your head, in your heart that you have confidence in that you know I don't care how I feel. I don't care what's going on outside. I'm going to sit here and do the best I can and love Guruji and do my meditation and leave the results and the timing up to him. There's a, there's a big step between that, that knowing that um, meditation works and actually that transition of leaving the struggle behind it. Do you find that? Not really. Oh, oh, no, good. I'm oh, sitting God, there. That's, that's <laughs> my ammo. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'll be trying to resolve it, looking at it, uh, worried about that or, or something else that's uh, maybe not as immediate. I just, I just say I've got to meditate because, you know, countless thousands of times I've sat down to meditate and I know that balance and perspective come every time. So I just know it's going to work. So I just, except for willpower, just saying, okay, get up and go meditate. Uh -huh. just, just say, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And then sometimes it'll drag out and I realize that I, I need to, you know, maybe I need, no, I need to do it. And I'm still trying to solve the issue. And I finally realized, no, <laughs> stop trying to solve it right now and worry over it. Go have a meditation. Okay. So for, for you, that's, that step is um, sometimes willpower. Yes. How I feel, I'm just going to do yeah. that because I know it works. Yes. Yeah. And I and I do know it works. I mean, it's, there's zero there's zero worry that and, it's not going to work this time. And that's because you've been in the trenches with it long enough to have that yeah. experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's empirical evidence tells me it works every time. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> okay. Good. For me. Uh, <laughs> And um, so meditation, the, the actual act of sitting in meditation, doing the techniques, and all of that sadhana practice is the, the um, greatest help that yes. has been for you. Yes. And, and so that's obviously what you would recommend for, for anyone else. Would yeah, I do. Yeah, people tell me. You know, I've got all this stuff going on. And I said, well, I, I'm, I'm assuming that meditation works for you and uh, it brings some result or you still wouldn't be doing it. I say, I just say, I don't say you should do it. I say what I do is I sit down and meditate because it brings me balance and perspective. 
Those balance. are the two words I use every time. Yeah. Wow. Balance and perspective. Okay. Okay. Those are great <laughs> ones. Those are great ones. All right. I'm blessed but that that does work for me. Yes. Yes. Because we don't all travel the same uh, karmic road to real. Exactly. Yeah. We, we've got different things to work on and different things yeah. that for us. And yeah. Which is why I always say that's, that works for me. Yeah. And that's what I get out of it. Yes. Yes. Okay. Final question. When you get to the other side and you look back on this particular incarnation, what is it you would like to be able to say about this incarnation? <laughs> well, I would say it was a, a tough road <laughs> at the beginning. And I'm so blessed. That I found the solution to all the problems that existence can throw at you. And it's meditation and your guru. That's the answer to life's problems. As simple as that. And you, and you at the end, will look back and say, I was so blessed to have that understanding. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, what a blessing to have come from the darkness I was in my first 25 years to the understanding that there was an answer to life's <laughs> biggest question. What's it all about? Yes, yes. Yeah. All right, very good. Well, it's been a pleasure listening to you. You're quite the storyteller. And I look forward to being able to see one of your slideshows. I've always wanted to go to the Middle East I don't think it's going to happen in this lifetime, but maybe I can okay. do it vicariously through your slide. You certainly can, Brenda. We will schedule it. All right. It's a deal. It's a wonderful life with Guruji, and it's so nice to share it with you, Mike. Jai yeah. Guru. Thank you. Jai, Jai Guru, Brenda. Well, dear friends, it's wonderful to hear these stories, isn't it? If you would like access to the private pages where guest contact and other information is posted, it's free and easy. Just email to subscribe to the Soul Calls Infinity mailing list. The email address is subscribe at soulcallsinfinity.org. For those of you who may be driving or jogging while listening, the link to subscribe will be in the show notes. The Chela de Chela podcast is sponsored by Soul Calls Infinity, and the music is courtesy of Soul Calls Music Meditations by Saranya, available online at soulcalls.org and on YouTube. I'm your host, Brenda Roberts, and I'd love to share your story. Email me for guest guidelines and preparation details. That's Brenda at soulcallsinfinity.org. 
I'm looking forward to sharing the next episode with you, where we'll be meeting another uniquely devoted disciple of our beloved Master, Paramahansa Yogananda Ji. In closing, let's listen again to this quote of Muktima and Master. Muktima is speaking. This is a time of spiritual rejuvenation, a time of drawing closer to God the Father and to the Divine Mother. Our Guru has said to us, A steady stream of divine power will flow to you, for the Great Ones have sent me here. When I am gone, you will realize this with greater impact. Little by little, a spiritual change will come to the true followers of this path, and their influence will spread over the world. SRF is one of the greatest spiritual movements ever sent to help mankind. So, dear friends, I hope you will share the podcast with at least one other SRF YSS devotee as we walk together in the spirit of divine friendship and in the love of God and Guru, affirming what we know to be true. It's a wonderful life with Guruji in it. Jai Guru Jai.